everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. The problem is, I know too much. That's the problem. I think it's your problem too. I'm not talking about intellect. I'm not talking about trivial pursuit. You know, those of you who love to watch Jeopardy, because you know the answer. Um, I'm talking about trouble. We live in an age where we know too much trouble. Two weeks ago, last time I was up here teaching, uh, those of you who joined and you happen to remember sermons, the few, the proud, um, you might remember that I intentionally watched the news that week and paid attention to what was going on in my own life as it relates to people reaching out to me and asking me for prayer. Now, I'm not talking about that through the lens of being a pastor. Obviously, part of my job as a pastor is people ask me for prayer. I'm talking about through the lens of just being someone's friend, that my friends who are struggling reaching out to me like your friends who are struggling reach out to you, like when you find trouble and you reach out to your friends. And two weeks ago, between the news and my friends, I remember walking into this pulpit, quite frankly, somewhat overwhelmed by what was going on. Uh, We had Afghanistan. Back then, we had the earthquake in Haiti. Do you remember that? That was just two weeks ago. It's been displaced now by other world tragedies. We still have Afghanistan, and the problem is worse. I don't know what's going on in your soul, when you read those stories, maybe you have somebody who served in the armed forces and it's even more personal for you. Maybe your heart goes out to the American citizens who are there, to the Afghan citizens who served the American military, or just, for example, the women in Afghanistan who are now trying to orient their lives and their minds around a new regime. But things are worse than they were two weeks ago. Uh, Last time I was up here, I shared about two friends of mine who had loved ones fighting for their life with the Delta strain of COVID. One of them, things are looking up. One of them, uh, he's still clutching on for life and it's not looking good. They're both still in the hospital. They've now been in the hospital for three weeks. Uh, The weather, now we're looking at a massive Category 5 storm. I checked the news this morning and they're at the levee at Louisiana and they're saying, well, the levee is 20 feet high and we're expecting just 11 feet And then uh, this week, uh, a friend of mine reached out to me because his pastor and the pastor's daughter were suddenly killed in an accident. The pastor was going on sabbatical, and the first thing he was going to do on sabbatical was drive his daughter to college, and they were killed by a semi-trailer. I'm not telling you all of this to try to make you feel bad. I I promise you I'm not. If you're feeling overwhelmed right now, this is the world that we live in. You know, when Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble, I think we should file a complaint for understatement. Like, come on. But when Jesus said that, all of the trouble was local. And now we live globally. We have, as the scholar Shane Wood wonderfully puts it, he calls this thing here a Tower of Babel. He says we have the Tower of Babel in our pocket where all the information is available to us Lots of trouble. And we can feel pummeled by trouble. I, I don't know what kind of mood you were in when you came in this morning. I noticed my heart was a bit heavy. I wrestle with, am I going to infect you with my heavy heart? But the fact is that you might, more chances than not, you might have come in uh, with some heaviness as well. It's actually, for me, part of the gift of worship. 
is I feel like when we get to sing together, it actually reorients us around hope because we have troubles all around. We have troubles inside of us. And since God is invisible and intangible, it can be very difficult to trust God without trouble. Uh, it can even be difficult to trust God that God is with us in our trouble. I don't know about you, but I find God to be so elusive sometimes. And where I take comfort is the people in Jesus' time struggle with this as well. You know, you would think that because Jesus was physically present, that the followers of Jesus would not struggle when they faced trouble. But it didn't take much for trouble to dislodge the disciples' faith in Jesus Christ. You'd actually be surprised if you go back and read your scripture, you'll actually see that it was a pretty short fuse that most of the disciples had where something would happen, some unexpected turn of events. You know, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus gets arrested and Peter puts away the whole idea of the Prince of Peace and now he's raging with a sword. Over and over and over again, one of the great themes of scripture is when life is hard or when people are confused they struggle to trust God. So whether you're a follower of Christ or not, if you struggle to trust God with your life, that makes you exactly human-sized. That puts you in the great company of God's people. So we welcome you to this church of saints and strugglers and sinners, which for us is just three synonyms for the same thing, And I invite us just to look in Scripture. We're going to look at a few passages today. I want to begin with a couple of disciples. These guys aren't particularly famous. One of them might be a woman. We're not actually sure because he or she is not named. Uh, But these are a couple of disciples. They're not part of the famous or notorious 12, but they are followers of Jesus Christ. And our story picks up after the resurrection. However, they didn't know that Jesus had risen from the dead. So from their point of view, their troubles were that for as long as they'd been following Jesus, they had counted on him to bring them life and healing. They'd seen him do miraculous things. They had anticipated as best as they could understand that Jesus would most likely overthrow the Roman government, usher in peace of the kingdom of God's great reign, and everything would be Jake. Um, That's a biblical word. Uh, And so here they are, after the resurrection, a handful of disciples know about the resurrection. They are not aware of the resurrection, and they're trying to sort it out. Luke 24. Now the same day, that's the same day that Jesus rose from the dead, the Sunday, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. This is what's wonderfully known as the story of the road to Emmaus. Some of you who have been around church for a long time, you're probably very familiar with this story. Others of you that maybe you're a guest with us, maybe you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you would say that your relationship to Bible stories is at best rusty and at worst non-existent. That's no problem. Uh, We're all in this together. This is the story of Cleopas and his companion. Uh, Other stories tell us this guy's name, Cleopas, and he's a follower of Christ. He has a companion. Some people think it's his wife. Mrs. Cleopas is what we call her around these parts. 
Either way, whether it was his wife or a friend, they're chatting about all of the disorientation that they're finding as followers of Jesus. We were following Jesus. We're putting our trust in Jesus. We gave it all. We, we sacrificed. We, we did weird things when he told us to do weird things. When we're at the crowd and the crowd's getting hungry and we're like, Jesus, the crowd is getting hungry. And Jesus is like, you feed them. We fed them. Like amazing, miraculous things that we did. We saw him raise that girl from the dead. We were there. We saw it. And now he's dead. And life has pulled all of our belief and everything we thought we knew to be true out from under us. And we're absolutely confused. This is what they're doing. They're having this conversation. And then Luke just very gently records, Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. I think it's my favorite phrase in this story. They were kept from recognizing him. What kept them from recognizing Jesus? This is a little church joke. Our Reformed sisters and brothers, but let's face it, mostly brothers, um, would say that it's God's sovereign will that kept them from recognizing Jesus. That's an adequate explanation. The text indicates that maybe there was some kind of a supernatural blinding. I think the explanation is much simpler. By the way, you know, taking a shot at our reformed sisters and brothers, but mostly brothers, we could also take a shot at some of our more progressive sisters and brothers who would say, and I quote, the sun was in their eyes. I wish I was making this up. That's actually a, a Bible commentary that I read. Well, the, the, the author says they're walking toward Emmaus, they're, they're walking west, it's in the afternoon, the sun's in their eyes, and uh, they were kept from recognizing Jesus, to which I, I don't mean to be smarmy. I, I know sometimes I can tend toward being smarmy, but isn't the solution just this? Like, that's not a good explanation. I think, I think the reason they were kept from recognizing Jesus is they were so wrapped up in their troubles. I think that's the human experience. That when trouble overcomes us, whether it's Trouble's coming at us. Sometimes it's trouble we make for ourselves. Are you one of those people that you can get yourself into trouble faster than the friend can warn you? Anne Lamott, one of my favorite Christian writers, where she talked about when she was in a full drinking binge, how she uh, would behave uh, badly faster than she could lower her own standards for herself. Her behavior was getting worse and worse, and no matter how quickly she tried to lower her standards, she just kept plunging through them. For some of you, man, can you ever get yourself into trouble so fast? I, I, I know in my own life, I'm, I'm working on how angry I get when I feel my courtesy being violated. The last time I was up here, I shared a story about road rage with this lady that cut me off and flipped me the bird and I wanted to chase her down in my Saab Turbo. This happened again. I, I've got a problem. I was on a plane. One of my elders, Cody, is sitting here and he's nodding. He's like, you've got a problem. We'll probably chat later. I was on a plane on row 37 of a 39-row airplane. I, I was supposed to come back the night before. The flight had been canceled for weather. I was really keen to get home. And because it had been cancelled and they rescheduled, I'm on the back of the plane. And we land, the seatbelt sign gets off, and one of the ladies two rows behind uh, pushes in front. And I can feel her family following, so I put my arm out. Yeah, it was not a good idea, for those of you wondering. And I simply said what I feel in a very calm manner. I'm, I'm sorry, listen, we're all trying to get off this plane. All of us want to get off. If you could just wait your turn like everyone else. 
very condescending. I didn't mean it condescending, but it was. And by the way, if you want to study how to make a whole room anxious, that's all you have to do. Because all the passengers around are looking at me. There's a lady across the aisle, and she's just looking at me like, it's not worth it. Um, F-bombs. I can't say they got exchanged, because I did not exchange an F-bomb, but I was the recipient of a number of rapid-fire F-bombs as they told me what they thought about my arm and what's going on? Why did I go from zero to 100 before I could even control myself? Because the next move was a physical altercation. And of course, you'll be proud of your pastor. I did not resort to that. I did figure out that I could take four of them before one of them would get me. Some of them were kids. They would have gone first. It was... Sometimes trouble comes at us. Sometimes we make trouble for ourselves and we find ourselves in trouble. And the Bible has a rich tradition that when we're in trouble, we forget that God's with us. We, we lose our capacity to notice that God is with us. In the Old Testament, Jacob, one of the most famous stories, he's running from his brother. His older brother has threatened to kill him. His older brother is so angry at him, he's basically put a hit out on Jacob's life. But Esau, his brother, has not just the mafia boss putting the hit on Jacob's life, he's also the hit man. He's like, I'm going to kill you. So Jacob does what any self-respecting fraidy cat would do. He runs away, and he goes and runs to his uncle's house for safety. And on the way, it's more than a day's journey. So as once he's run as far as he can run from Esau, he, he stops for the night. The, the scripture poignantly says he uses a stone for a pillow. And he has a, a dream that is so vivid when he wakes up, he realizes God was in the dream. And it wasn't one of those things where he dreamed about God. It's not that he dreamed of God. It's that God actually visited Jacob in the dream. And then Jacob wakes up and says this beautiful phrase. He declares, he says, surely... Surely the Lord was in this place, and I was not aware of it. I think there's something about trouble and pain that makes us forget that God is with us. In, in fact, I think one of the disciplines that we can all work on this week, and this is very difficult to do, is we can learn to notice when we've stopped noticing God. Uh, there's probably a better way to say it, but that's the discipline. What would your life look like if you cultivated a habit of learning to notice when you stop noticing? One of the signs for me is when my anger, I, I see myself as a very reasonable, calm person. Two, two incidents in two weeks, apparently not. So I'm, I'm currently on a journey with God saying, okay, Lord, what is going on in me that you want to show me? And for me, it's something to do with courtesy. When people are discourteous, they commit a 50-cent crime, and I want them to pay a $100 fine. It's, it's, some, it's not healthy. Some of you are like, I'm like that. It's not healthy. I'm not, I'm not justifying it. But, but in those moments... Like, if, if I had really been aware that God was with me in that moment on the plane, I would have noticed those people felt this compulsive need to get off the plane as fast as they could, and perhaps we could have had a conversation about that instead of the old arm and the condescension and the F-bombs. Yeah. What would your life look like if you learned to notice when you stopped noticing that God is with you because the problem we have as human beings is God is with us all the time. But how often in your life do you just forget? For me, most of my life, I, I would say I, I operate 
the majority of my life where I'm not aware that God's with me and the minority of my life where I'm actually able to relax into the presence of God. And I, I think the number one obstacle is trouble and pain. We've been chipping away in this series of the problem of evil and suffering and a loving God. How can a loving God, people ask, how can a loving God allow evil and suffering? And, and every week I've been up here and every week I am up here, I'll be going to say the same thing. The authors of Scripture are not asking that question. They're asking how can human beings and Satan allow it? But as I was thinking about this last two weeks, you know, I got up here a couple of weeks ago, I watched the news, I noticed what I'm carrying in my own life. Two weeks later, it's about the same. It's actually a little heavier than it was a couple of weeks ago. Some of the world events are worse. Some of the people in my life are struggling even more. And it occurred to me that we measure the goodness of God by our awareness of situational pain. That's what we do as humans is, is before we had this thing in the news and global information, we didn't know as much. We, we didn't have to grapple with as much. It's, it's an awful thing. I'm not letting us off the hook. We are an activist church. When we see pain, we move toward it as a church, but it's an awful thing to see so much tragedy and violence in the world and know about it and just not know what to do about it. And it can tend to numb you to it. I question whether we were designed to know as much as we know. I, I question if actually the number one issue in the Garden of Eden was the knowledge of good and evil. And then as human beings, we say, yeah, we want that knowledge. And God's like, not so fast. It's a heavy burden to carry. And I think what happens for us is the more pain and trouble we're aware of in any given moment, the more angst we have about the goodness of God. It's because our circumstances speak louder than the truth of God. And Paul, in the New Testament, he was coaching a ministry student named Timothy. And uh, this is a phrase that's very familiar to many people in church. Second Timothy 1, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The spirit... Paul writes to Timothy, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. In another translation, the way it's worded is, God does not give us a spirit of fear, is what Paul is saying to Timothy, as Timothy is facing the end of his life for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And I, I think this trouble can make us timid. It can make us uh, shrink back. We get overwhelmed by trouble and we retreat. And Paul is reminding Timothy, and therefore I think is reminding us as well, that we have access to these forces that God has freely given God's people that can overcome timidity, that can overcome fear, can overcome the feeling of overwhelm, can overcome trouble, which is power, love, and self-discipline. So we're in this series on the villains of the Bible. We've thrown a few people under the bus in this series. We even blamed a weather pattern one week. This week, today's villain is fear and timidity. Fear and timidity. I just want to pause, and those of you who, where it's helpful if you write something down, or maybe you keep notes on a device, just a very simple question. Uh, what are you afraid of right now? 
what in your life are you fearing? There's, there's that rare person who says, I don't really, I'm not really afraid of much. That's fine. Ask someone who loves you what they think you're afraid of. And then believe them when they tell you. But for most of us, I think we're pretty aware that when trouble hits, whether trouble of our own doing or trouble that comes into us, our tendency can be to retreat into fear and timidity and we can forget that God is with us. And Paul is reminding Timothy that power, love, and self-discipline is what your life can look like when God is with you. There's a, there's a modern uh, fine artist. He's also an author. He, he's one of those guys that's just like a Renaissance man or Renaissance man, depending on what hemisphere you're born on, uh, how you pronounce that. He, he's a fine artist. He's also an incredible author, a very gifted speaker. His name's um, Makoto Fujimura, and he's a Christian, and he's considered by anyone who you'd ask, what are your faith beliefs, to be one of the finest modern artists of all time, uh, of, of modern day, I'm sorry, not all time, but he's one of the modern day's finest artists. Um, he has a form of art where he makes the paint before he paints on the canvas. So part of the Japanese tradition is you build all the elements from nothing. So make your own paper, make your own paint. I had an incredible privilege of interviewing um, Makoto for my podcast. And before we hit record, we're just chatting. We hadn't met each other before. And he, he's been a real influence on my life for many years. And so I was, frankly, kind of fanboying a little bit. And I said, well, what have you been doing today? And he said, oh, I've been making yellow. What? What? He said, I've been making yellow. And he explained to me the, the whole craft of how you build a color and then you use it. It was really something that's dirt and clay and, and water and everything. Anyway, Fujimura, uh, one of the um, art forms that he uses is kintsugi. It's a Japanese art form. It was started in the 1500s. When something precious, like a bowl, it's almost always a piece of pottery, when something precious breaks, the Japanese art form of kintsugi takes the broken pieces and adds gold, pure gold to it, and uses the gold as glue to put it back together. And the kintsugi bowl is infinitely more valuable than the previous value of the bowl before it was smashed. Does that make sense? So what the Japanese art form of Kintsugi does, what Fujimura does, is they'll, they'll find broken bowls, usually bowls of some kind of high value. They then have a very, it's a very spiritual experience to then slowly put the bowl back together, use gold as glue, and now you have this beautiful bowl with these veins of gold. Every time you see a bowl like this, you know that it was shattered and it's been rebuilt into something more valuable. For the Columbine shooting 20th anniversary, Makoto Fujimura flew out here. He'd been working on a kintsugi bowl for the Columbine family for 20 years. He began the project when he first heard the news of the shooting. He waited 20 years of craft and he presented it just a couple of years ago to the faculty and the students of Columbine High School. In the hands of the craftsman, the broken life is much more valuable than it was before it was ever shattered. I think there's some gospel to be had in that. One of the things we're most afraid of in our culture is death. 
We live in a culture of death. There's death all around us. We're all going to die. Some of you right now, you know, you brought a friend to church and you're like, it's normally not this much of a bummer. But what we do at this church, whether we're having fun or not, is we just say what really matters and we talk about things that are true. And we're all going to die. And even though we're all going to die, we simply live in a culture that doesn't really know how to process death. We struggle with grief. We don't really have many rituals with grief. You study other cultures and some of their rituals with grief, you realize how bankrupt we are in this culture of death. And I think one of the things that happens to us when we uh, are inundated with the troubles of the world is it touches a nerve with us that we fear death. But, but death in the kingdom of God is just a kintsugi bowl. That's all it is. If you are a follower of Christ, your death and the death of the people you love most, it's just a bowl before it was ever shattered. Jesus one day was just walking along, and two of his dear friends, Mary and Martha, sisters, they came rushing up to him, talking about another of his dear friends, Lazarus, their brother. All right, three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Some of you are like, I think I've heard of Mary and Martha before. Yeah, you have. You've probably been at some retreat where some preacher like me gets up and spits on Martha and says, we should all be more like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, just lapping in the knowledge while Martha's bustling around with hospitality. Be like Mary, we say. Uh, not in this passage. This is the passage. You can read this on your own. Where Martha's the one fully connected to Jesus and Mary's off all anxious on her own and frantic. <laughs> but part of my job is to rebalance some of the myths we've made out of the Bible. So Jesus is on the other side of town and he's healing and doing his ministry and Mary and Martha rush up to him and they get word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is very sick and it's not looking good and hey Jesus would you interrupt the miracles you're doing now to come and do a miracle for your close and dearest friends. It's a fair request. I think if you're going to be a very good friend to a faith healer there has to be fringe benefits. And so Mary and Martha, I think, appropriately say, listen, we're friends. I've done a lot for you. Remember that meal I cooked when my lame sister sat at your feet? That was me. How about I cash in a favor? And in the original language, the, the answer of Jesus could not have been more different. About the most accurate interpretation from the Greek would be Jesus said, meh, like, that's not the way they're printed in the Bible, but if you open it, you're, like Jesus is stunningly indifferent to the pain and suffering that Martha and, and her brother, who he loves. And he finally gets around to visiting four days later. And by that point, Lazarus had been dead three days. And so Jesus has this conversation with Martha. He asks her, uh, about the resurrection and what she thinks of her dead brother. And in John 11, Martha answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? My favorite part of this text is the tense Jesus uses. When I think of the resurrection, I'm always thinking in the future. 
one day we will all rise. The dead in Christ will rise and there'll be a glorious reunion. What I often think of is the, I don't know, I don't know about your number by mine, the dozens, maybe hundreds of people I'm looking forward to seeing again have already gone on before. I'm always thinking in the future, but Jesus didn't say, I will be the resurrection he used the present tense. I don't think that's an accident. Even Martha was looking ahead at the day to come and Jesus says, no, resurrection is right now. It's, it's me. And when I face troubles, when I get overwhelmed by what's going on in my life, I cannot tell you the amount of comfort it gives me that Jesus' resurrection is right now. Brian Zahn puts it this way, Jesus has not so much returned from death as he has gone all the way through death and he's emerged into a completely new world. We, we speak sloppily when we say that Jesus came back from the dead. Zahn correctly reminds us, no, Jesus didn't come back from anything. He went through it. And he now lives and breathes and has his being in a whole other reality that we will taste fully one day, but for now we just get glimpses and, and our troubles block our sight from it. Th this is our hope. This is what we put our hope in. Uh, hope is something, someone outside of us. It, hope is in someone who cares for us. Uh, we put our hope in someone who can do something for us we cannot do. And so whatever trouble you're carrying today, just a couple of quick words. First of all, you're not alone. There is something about trouble that wants to isolate us and make us feel like I'm the only one carrying it. I don't know what to do with it. And this is why God gave the church. The church is ugly and messy and warts and all, and also beautiful and amazing all at the same time. I don't know what your opinion is of the church. You may have had a horrendous experience with your local church, and it might even be true. Um, but also, the church is the place where you don't go through your troubles alone. And so if you find yourself today overwhelmed by trouble, I'm going to invite Daniel and the team to come out right now, and they're going to lead us in worship, We'll receive communion, and then at the end, when Daniel dismisses us, come on down front, and we would love to meet you in your trouble and pray with you and for you. But also, of course, the church, we are the body of Christ, but Christ is the head of the church, and the Jesus we believe in did not come back from the dead. Death was not the end. Death was just like a, a thing that Jesus went through. Death was no trouble for Jesus. It didn't even cause him trouble. It was just a transition into a whole other reality. And the God that we serve today is the present tense resurrection. If you are a follower of Christ, you get to experience the benefits of resurrection today. You don't have to wait till you die. The good news is you can die today and be resurrected in a new life today. You can trade your troubles for the hope that is in the gospel today. And if you're not a follower of Christ, that's what you get. You don't have to be afraid of death. I've shared before, I'm not afraid of being dead. I'm afraid of getting there. The dying part doesn't sound very fun. But once I'm dead, I have no fear at all. Because I know that God will raise me from the dead, give me eternal life, reunite me with a family of God forever. No more pain, no more suffering. In this world, you will have trouble. Thanks, Jesus, for that understatement. But fear not, I have overcome So we declare that through worship, 
We stand, those who are able, let's stand now and let's declare the goodness of God through the worship of God.